Luke chapter 8, verses 22 through 25. One day he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? Grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God stands forever. Last week we covered some of the teachings of Jesus. We went through the parable of the sower and the parable of no one lights a lamp and sets it under a bed or or covers it up but they put it on a table. We covered kind of a large section of the first of chapter 8 in the in the book of Luke. And Luke seems to have gathered these these events to to make a specific point here at the end of chapter 8. He gathers all of these action stories. We've got this first one of Jesus calming the storm. Next week we'll be looking at Jesus and the, the Gerasene, the man afflicted with the legion of demons. And then it's the healing of the woman with the issue of blood and the raising of Jairus' daughter. And there's all these miraculous events that Jesus begins to perform. And Luke has gathered them specifically. Luke is one of the writers who's not as dead set on his chronology. Like he doesn't say this, then this, then this. As you can see, our passage for this week opened up with one day he got into a boat. So Luke gathers these stories together for a specific point. So we should ask, what, what is the point that Luke is trying to make? Why is he gathering at this point all of these incredible stories about who Jesus was? Well, we should be questioning the claims of Jesus. When Jesus shows up, as the early Testament would have been, readers would have been doing, and those around at the time of Jesus would have been doing, we should be questioning the claims that Jesus has just made. In a general sense, Jesus is teaching to speak for God himself. Jesus is saying these things not as though God has said it, let me share it with you. He is sharing things by saying, I'm telling you this is what you should do. I'm telling you this is the word from God out of my mouth, this word, as he is God. And he is speaking authoritatively as though people should listen intently and with a heart to respond to whatever it is Jesus says. But why would anyone take... There's lots of traveling rabbis at this time. Um, Prophets have stopped happening for the last 400 years, except for John the Baptist has just shown up as a prophet. But... Lots of traveling rabbis who would go around and they would have a band of followers who they would instruct and disciple and then they would just teach as they traveled around. But why this traveling rabbi? Why should we listen to him? What is it about this traveling rabbi that makes his words so much more powerful? Who does this guy think he is to go around and teach authoritatively like this? And so Luke, to back up the point that yes, we should listen to him, goes through and gathers for us these incredible events in the life of Jesus. Who does this guy think that he is? And how you answer that question is very 
very, very important. And the depth to which you answer that question is very important. Who is Jesus? Who is this man? This matters immensely. My, one of my desires here in this congregation is, is under this idea that theology produces doxology. Theology produces doxology. It's not new to me, but it's stuck in my head. I can't tell you where I first heard it. The idea that theology produces doxology. And the, the understanding of that is to say that, that right knowing of God leads to right rejoicing in God. That it is through deep thoughts of God, understanding who He is, understanding who Jesus is, that then real and great joy flow out of that reality. That theology, right knowledge of God, inevitably leads to great rejoicing in God. And that is what I'm after when we, when we up here on a Sunday morning and maybe get a little more um, long and, and, and teaching on a topic is with this conviction, this desire, why we do the Bible study on Wednesday night and things like that, is to increase the depth of, the, of our own thinking. Because theology, right thinking of God, will lead to doxology. There are many different ways to try and spice up a church, to try to spice up a church service, to get our music going better, start running a, a bunch more programs, start doing all sorts of different activities. And all those things are, are fine. I'm, I'm okay with doing things like that. But my conviction is that if you work up all these emotions, you work up all of this um, doxology, all of this praise, all of this activity, and it has no grounding in accurate theology, it has no grounding in who God really is, who Jesus really is, who He has said He is, then all that excitement is about nothing. All of that excitement is about nothing. If you build up this excitement with no ground in the truth, when the storms of life come, that's what one of the things we gather for, is the understanding the storms of life do come. If you build up all of this doxology with no depth of theology, when the winds and the storms of life blow, doxology is the first thing to fly out the window because it has no ground in any sort of truth. So our work here this morning and on every morning really, and one of the works you need to be employed in for your own soul, for your own heart, is the depth of your own theology. Who do we say Jesus is? Who do we say God is? And there's nothing but benefit the deeper and the deeper the way that you describe who Jesus is. I want us to be trees that have our roots sunk so deeply in the wellspring of the reality of God our Savior that when the summer drought is upon us, we still sing in the breeze. That our roots are sunk so deep that when all around us goes brown and dries out, we still drink deeply because of the reality of who Jesus is. So that's what we're going for. Theology producing doxology. Who does this guy think he is? And what does it matter to us? The first question that we come to is the one the disciples had. They say at the end, if you can look in your Bibles with me, at the end of verse 25, who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey them? Who is this? What is the answer to this question? Who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? And the first obvious answer is this is not a normal human being. This cannot be 
I don't think, I mean, I hate to have you raise your hands because Carlos is here. He likes to raise his hand when I ask things like this. But have you ever met someone that honestly walks out and tells storms what to do? If you have, I hope it scared you because that's really freaky. Normal people cannot do this. So the, when this question, the first thing is he's not a, homo, a normal human being. But this is where the confusion enters because so many things about Jesus do appear to be a normal human being. Jesus has just got done here taking a nap. This is where we catch, this is one of the best, uh, this is, you want to build a theology of napping. This is your passage, okay? That, that God approves of naps. Here is the Savior of the world. In all of his humanity, he works hard, he teaches hard, he preaches hard, he ministers to the people. And when it's time to nap, Jesus gets down to business and there isn't a storm or an uncomfortable place in a boat that's going to stop him. When he needs to nap, Jesus is going to nap. So he, this is a great passage on the humanity of Jesus. He works hard, but when it comes time to nap, not even a potentially sinking ship is going to take him from his intended course. But appearing so much, because he is truly man... He also, when he is woken from his nap, he does something very unlike a human. Speaks to winds and waves, and they listen. Who does something like that? If you still have your Bible out, if you don't, grab it back out. We're going to go back into a few places in the Psalms. Psalm 107. If you were at prayer meeting last month, we read Psalm 107 four times over, just emphasizing the the repetition of this psalm. But So this might be familiar to you if you were here. Psalm 107, verses 23 through 30. Who's, who, who calms waves and winds? Psalm 107, 23 through 30. Some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, His wondrous works in the deep. For He commanded and, he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea... They mounted up to heaven, speaking of how this is the motion of a boat. They mounted up to heaven on top of the waves. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' ends. They cried to the Lord in their trouble. Who did they cry to? The Lord. They cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Also flip back to Psalm 65. We've just got three psalms I want us to look at here. Psalm 65, verses 5 through 8. By awesome deeds, you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, the one, who's the one? God, the one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might. Verse 7, this God, this God of our salvation, who established the strengths of the mountains, this God who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. Who calms seas? Who calms storms? God does. God does. God our Savior. God is the one who can calm storms, who can calm seas. Psalm 89 is our last one here. Flip back a few more. Psalm 89, 
verses 8 and 9. Read like this. Psalm 89, verses 8 and 9. O, God, o Lord God of hosts, who is as mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you? You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. To the psalm writer, there's no question who calms the seas. Who calms seas? God does. Jesus shows up. He's in the middle of a nap. Very human thing to do. The disciples wake him up. And what does he do? He calms the seas. The implication is unavoidable. It's unavoidable. Jesus is mighty like God. Jesus does deeds like God because Jesus is God. The stilling of the storm is a trait and an ability that God alone possesses. And Jesus shows his divinity by his very own possessing of this ability in his own person. Jesus gets up not to pray to God to stop it, not to ask God to stop it, not to bail out water. Jesus gets up and he rebukes waves and winds and they listen to him. Listen to him. They obey. Water goes calm. No one can do that but God. Jesus is God. This is the reality that screams to us from this passage. Jesus is God. Who then is this that calms waves and waters? Only God can do this. Here Jesus has done it. Jesus is God. But then it brings us to this next troubling question. Why are they out there in this boat in the middle of the storm? Jesus calms it, and that's great. But why are the disciples in this predicament? What, what has put them in this position where their lives are in such danger? This boat is being swamped. Had the disciples made some sort of a wrong decision that had provoked the wrath of God, threatening to swamp their boat in their own rebellion? They've gotten out, they had to have gotten outside of the will of God or something that they're in such danger. Why are they in this position? But consider that the same God who can tell the storm to stop, who sleeps through its danger, not disturbed, is the God who knew that this moment was coming all along. And yet, who is responsible for the disciples being in this situation? Who's responsible? Jesus. Look at chapter 8, verse 22. One day after this teaching, likely, of the sower. One day, the other Gospels kind of relay that in, in order there. After this teaching, one day... He gets into a boat with his disciples and he says to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. Whose idea is it to cross the Sea of Galilee? It's Jesus. It is Jesus who commands them to do so. So what does this mean for us today? What The disciples are smack dab in the middle of the will of God. They are right where Jesus wants them to be. Are they not? He's told them. Get in the boat, go to the cross, we're going to go to the other side of the lake. They are exactly where God wants them to be. And yet that reality does not rescue them from the presence of a very real and life-threatening storm. You cannot assume that when a storm arises in your life, you have somehow been abandoned by God. You cannot assume that when a storm arises in your life, you have somehow been abandoned by God. By no mean, Christian, by no mean whatsoever. I know firsthand that when storms come and when the dark clouds hide out, the light of God's presence 
it is very easy to ask where God is and wonder if he has abandoned you. It would be easy for the disciples, and you get kind of a hint of it, that they feel like something has gone wrong. We are not where we're supposed to be. This storm should not be swamping us. We're perishing. Something has gone wrong. God has abandoned us. Here Jesus sleeps, but I guess this was all a hoax because here we are abandoned and we are going to perish. But if you are a Christian today, I need to, rem- I need to make it clear that just because you are suffering assault through various avenues in your life, it does not mean that the Lord is not with you. Sometimes the thought is out there that if, that if, that if a Christian is right in the center of God's will, he'll protect them from all trouble. It's this idea that the will of God is some sort of an umbrella, right? So you walk around and the, you got the umbrella of the will of God. And boy, if, if I'm under the will of God, if I'm under this umbrella, it can rain all around me, but boy, it never gets me wet. That's not the picture we get in scriptures of the will of God. The will of God is not like an umbrella that hides you, but it's more like well-laid tracks on, for a train. That though they are buffeted by all sorts of storms and tribulations and trials, they arrive at their destination. God has laid out these tracks. And they go forward. They go forward through so many, which means they aren't going backwards. They go forward. That's a, that's a, a Sunday school joke. Never mind. A couple of you got it. Uh, they go forward. They don't go backwards, but they go forward because this is what God has willed for them. So I must say... This as well, though. If your life is not anchored to God through the person and work of Jesus Christ, I have no good news for you this morning. If your life is not anchored to God through the person and work of Jesus Christ, there is no no good news. The ship will go down. I only offer this plea. Do not delay trusting in Christ. Confess your sins. Trust in the good news. Trust in the one who lived his life perfectly for you. Lived the life you should have lived. Died the death that you deserved so that you could be forgiven of your sin. Trust in him today. Without him, there is no anchor for your soul. Without him, there is no safe harbor. You will be adrift in the turbulence of life. And in the final analysis, will have no safe place to rest your boat. But you will sink into the depths, yes, of the wrath of God. Scripture is clear on this. Without Christ in your boat, you have trouble. However, however, the Christian who has united their life to Christ cannot and will not ultimately be lost. Is everything, here's a question for you, is everything going to go okay? No. Look at the disciples. Look at Stephen, Acts chapter 7. Didn't take long for things not to go well for this, this deacon in the church, full of the Holy Spirit, Scripture says, a wonderful leader in the church. He is murdered, stoned to death. Seventh chapter of the book of Acts, right as the church is beginning. Is everything going to go well? No. Is everything going to go okay? No. Is everything going to be okay? Yes. Yes. Is everything going to go okay? Is everything going to be okay? Yes. Yes. If you are Christ, you have the promises of Romans 8, 31 through 38 as your own. Turn back to Romans chapter 8. 
I'd like you to follow along with me if at all possible. I want you to see this. I want you to think on this. I want you to plant this theology in your hearts. This is what guides your boat in the storm. This is for the Christian. Romans 8. We just know it's for the Christian. Read 28 through 30. Those who have who have been justified, those he foreknow, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, those whom he predestined, he also called, those he called, he justified, those he justified, he glorified. These are his children. Verse 8, verse 31 of chapter 8, the book of Romans. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Answer the question from that passage, is everything going to go okay? That's a, that's a no. Verse 37, is everything going to be okay? In all of these things, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Look at these revolutionary promises. Look at this. Paul is arguing that when you have the advocacy of Jesus Christ before God the Father... There can really be nothing that is done or taken away from you that can compare with the greatness of what you have on your side. Christ is for you. None of these things, death, life, angels, rulers, things present, things to come, powers, heights, deaths, anything else in all creation can separate you from the love of Christ, love of God in Christ Jesus. Which is why I think Jesus rebukes here his disciples It's definitely a rebuke, and he asks them, where is your faith? What the disciples do wrong? It's a rebuke. There's no no denying it. He gets up, he's, where's your faith? It's a negatively stated question. What they do wrong? Should they not try to bail out the boat? You know, maybe they should be like, well, I don't know, Jesus is here, so I guess the water will bail itself. He'll get up and throw it out. Should they not have bailed the boat? I don't know that it was wrong to bail the boat out. Should they not have woken Jesus? Maybe they should have just been like, well, he's asleep. I'm sure it'll be okay. Don't call out to the Savior. I can't imagine that God would ever put someone down for calling upon their Savior. Surely that was not wrong to call upon Jesus. Should they not have called upon their master and their concern? No. Should they not have tried to keep the boat upright? Maybe they should be like, well, let's help this thing over. Everyone get on one side. Let's just, let's just tip it over. Obviously, it's supposed to be tipped. No. No. But there is this rebuke. The rebuke seems to come for a lack of faith because when they call upon the master, they presume to be able to speak authoritatively about their own position and the possibility of what can happen to them with their Savior. They claim they are perishing. Master, master, we are perishing. We are perishing. It's all over. 
Master, they, they're speaking authoritatively. This is what's happening. Master, we are perishing. If you are Christ's, if you are Christ, if you are with Him and He is with you, perishing is never, ever going to be a part of your reality. David Gooding writes this in his commentary. We live in a universe that is lethally hostile to human life. Within our earth itself, wind, wave, lightning, storm, flood, drought, avalanche, earthquake, fire, heat, cold, germ, virus, epidemic, wonderful list, all from time to time threaten and destroy life. Sooner or later, one of them may destroy us. The story of the stilling of the storm is not, of course, meant to tell us that Christ will never allow any believer to perish by drowning or by any other natural disaster. Many believers have so perished. It does demonstrate that He is the Lord of the physical forces in the universe, that for Him nothing happens by accident, and that no force in all creation can destroy His plan for our eternal salvation or separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus is God, and therefore can tell every storm to stop. Jesus is God, and therefore knows every storm that will come your way. Jesus is God, and will keep you, Christian, no matter what the circumstances in life may be telling you. With Him, there ultimately is no perishing. With him there is nothing but the highest joys and the highest treasure that there is himself. The rich young ruler in Matthew chapter 19, you're all very familiar with the story of this man who comes to Jesus and Jesus says, he says, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus gives him the second table of the law. The rich young ruler says, oh, I've kept all these from my youth. And Jesus says, go and sell all that you have. Give it to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And what happens? That rich young ruler goes away in sorrow. He goes away sorrowful from Jesus because his wealth was great. It says in, the, in Matthew 19 clearly, his wealth was great. He was not willing to follow Jesus if it meant that his life wouldn't have the comforts he already had being richly provided for in his life. But he didn't hear what Jesus said. Go sell all your treasures that you're going to lose anyway. And you'll possess treasure in heaven. He's sad because he would lose his treasure, never seeing that he would gain a treasure that he could have no other way through Jesus. Is this pie in the sky theology? You know, you hear that sometimes. Oh, it's just pie in the sky. Oh, that's all these things up here. And if, if, by, if, pie in the, if by pie in the sky you mean that the reward is ultimately and finally in some place we are yet to arrive to, then okay, I'll take it. Yes. There is something coming. There is something better. Is it the opiates of the religion? Is the opiate of the people? And if, what do you mean by that? If you mean that it, the substance, it's the substance that keeps us going through all the difficulties that life brings our way, then okay, I guess I'll take it because that is what this is. This truth, that's okay. But but neither one of those accusations really faces the issue. Is Jesus who He says He is? Call it pie in the sky if you want to. Call it opiates for the masses, religion, to help them get through life. But answer this question. Is Jesus who he says he is? He wakes up from a nap and he tells winds and waves to be quiet. Jesus is God. The reason why we're okay with pie in the sky and opiates for the people is because Jesus is real. Jesus is true. Jesus is God. And these promises he has made are promises coming from a man 
who tells storms to stop. We can, take these, we can take this man at his word. He is not just another man. He is the God-man. Philip Graham Ryken, Jesus is on board with us as we ride out the storm. He has given us the promise of his everlasting presence. And we can depend on him in every desperate situation. If ever we find ourselves in any difficulty, we have this promise as an anchor for the soul. soul. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. That's from Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 3. Philip Graham Ryken goes on. And if anyone asks us, where is your faith? You can tell them, our faith is in the God who rules the universe and in His Son, Jesus Christ, who has died on the cross for our sins. Where is your faith? Where is your treasure? Where is your pleasure? Where is your hope? Placing it anywhere but in Christ is to leave the harbor with no anchor and no port in the storm of life. But to place your trust in Christ is to have the Savior as the ballast of your boat and the ballast in your life that will keep you in whatever trials come your way and will secure you to himself. When you have this Savior, when you have this God as your Savior, this Jesus as your God and Savior, then you can truly rejoice and say with Paul in Philippians 3 and 8, verse 8, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ. Let's pray. Father, may you be and give us eyes to see the great treasure that Christ is for us. Plant it deep in our hearts, God. Things are not guaranteed to go okay. But in the final analysis, the Christian has promised everything is going to be okay. Our Savior will return. He will right every wrong. He will wipe away every tear. Sin will be banished. Sickness, disease, sorrow, gone forever. And we will live in the light of your joy forever. God, secure that hope, that reality to our hearts in this place this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.